In my language, I greet you and I extend greetings to the people of this territory. And I thank the elders for the welcome that has been shown to me and to others here. And I thank the elders of the tribes whose traditional territory this is for having allowed us to be here this evening on your territory. I also want to thank the organizers of this event. Hi, welcome to Open Out podcasts exploring the nitty-gritty of creating and maintaining intentionally open intercultural faith communities. I'm your host, Bill Miller. This is the first in our final section of podcasts called Continuing, looking at resources for communities that have gone through significant change in order to welcome diversity. In this final stage of our journey, the information becomes a bit more complex, even perhaps technical at times. And the podcasts... uh, Yeah, unavoidably, a bit longer. Today we'll focus on decolonization. As I said that word, decolonization, what was the first thing that came to your mind? Or more importantly, what was the first feeling that came into your heart? Curiosity? Eagerness? Or perhaps something a bit more cynical? Oh, here we go again. A tiny sigh, maybe? The slightest of eye-rolling? If so... That's not bad. It just is. Or perhaps you experience something closer to fear, a a sense of apprehension, a slight quickening of the heart rate. Whatever came into your mind, whatever your heart felt, it wasn't good or, or bad, it just was. It came out of your experience. If you felt genuine eagerness and curiosity, that grew out of your experience. If it was closer to cynicism, well, that too probably grew out of your experience, perhaps by encountering a cause promoted by some well-meaning advocates, but, but somehow it rang hollow, insincere, more trendy than authentic. Social progressives, and I am one of them, have a strong history of using words, jargon, as a substitute for real action, meaningful change. If what you felt was a bit of fear, apprehension, perhaps you rightly sense that this word decolonization is calling you, calling me, all of us, to change, to reconfigure our thinking, our living, and that takes effort. Or it could be that you didn't have much response at all. That word might be new to you. Perhaps you've come here recently and after 10 or 20 years in a refugee camp, getting settled, trying to adapt, learn the language, the customs, Well, this concept might not be uppermost in your mind. Whatever your experience, whatever your feelings, this word really does matter, here in our Canadian context and beyond. It connects directly with our desire to intentionally open ourselves to diversity, and it impacts directly our ability to do so. So, if you're ready, let's do some exploring. As regular listeners to this podcast will know, there are many things I know very little about. And one of the things I know littlest about is computing. I am fortunate, however, to have a very smart younger brother named Tom who knows lots about it. In fact, he actually works with the piece. Not quantum computing, he says that's just weird. But he has assured me that regular computing is still nothing more than a series of zeros and ones. (laughs) 
or as he put it, just a bunch of on-off switches. It's either this or that, totally binary. Now in computing, this works well. In life though, not so much. The world is not as binary, not as neatly divided into black and white, on and off, good and bad, as we often think, or at least as our prefrontal cortexes wish. Race is a continuum, so is sexual orientation. Even gender, which at one time we thought to be clearly pretty binary, you're either male or female, well, we now understand it too is also a continuum. But colonization, hmm, it's pretty binary. Your ancestors, your people, were almost certain to be either colonizer or colonized. And where your ancestors were in the heyday of colonialism, that will affect deeply how you see the world, family, community. Will inform what you expect in life, what you see as yours, what you are entitled to. Now, think even about that word, entitled. It contains the central idea that if we have title to something, it's ours. Some of you might remember the words of Chief Seattle to the white politicians. How can you buy or sell the sky, the warmth of the land? The idea is strange to us. We do not own the freshness of the air or the sparkle of the water. How can you buy them from us? It may indeed be a quirk of your culture to think that while we cannot own the air or the water, we can somehow own the land. But that idea was central to historical colonialism, and it is central to neocolonialism, its grandchild. Colonization, then, is the process of establishing control over the indigenous people of an area, often by settling there. It is the act of appropriating a place that is somebody else's place by force and saying, okay, now it's mine. It's like me coming to your house and saying, mm, your house is mine now. If you resist, I'll kill you. But if you don't, well, maybe I'll let you stay in one corner of the garage. Oh, and your language and religion? You'll have to give those up. Um, and your children? You can't raise them, so it's off to boarding school or foster care for them so they can learn to be more like me. Decolonization, a term that gets used a lot these days, is a bit harder to define. The strict dictionary definition is something like a state withdrawing from a former colony, allowing it to become independent. It's the undoing of colonization, reversing the process. In much of Africa, this has often involved the colonizers, the Europeans, leaving, returning the land, giving up control. But what does it mean here in Canada, where the colonizers remain on the land? And not only do they linger, they continue to hold most of the power and wealth. How can lingering white settlers decolonize the very land they occupy? It is confusing and really Creating clarity on this is a task for those far wiser than me. For this podcast, let's simply look at it in the realm of faith communities, a context that I actually do know. Here we can think of decolonization as something akin to metanoia. That Greek word it means transforming the mind, and it's often translated in the Bible as repentance. So, for example, if you are, like me, dominant class, white, Euro-Canadian, or Euro-American, or 
your whatever. Decolonization involves seeking to psychologically, spiritually, and economically disentangle ourselves from the stance of domination. If you are a newcomer, it will be up to you to determine what decolonization means for your community. It might involve some kind of alignment with the first peoples of this land, some kind of solidarity. But really, that's yours to determine. If you're indigenous, well then I can only listen as you articulate what you understand decolonization to mean. For this podcast then, I am likely to focus a bit more on my own people, dominant class white folk. Colonization, then, is like me, without warning, invading your neighborhood, your community, taking over your very home, evicting you, saying, your house is now mine. But if you don't make trouble, you can stay in one corner of the garage. Well, that's pretty immoral, right? I mean, it's just wrong when you think about it. When we engage in an act that is fundamentally wrong, fundamentally immoral, then we create a poison, a toxicity. The Apostle Paul calls this the wages of sin. We create a toxin, which is like mercury in the water. It it poisons the individual and the community. And so even if we have benefited economically, we've been poisoning ourselves in the process. All of this would be bad enough if it was some them who enacted this sly, selfish, mean ploy. Someone else, anyone else really, a ruthless tyrant or some faceless corporation, someone else who did this terrible thing to these unfortunate people. If only we in the church had fought the good fight, protested the injustices of colonization, naming it as evil, self-serving, indefensible, unjustifiable. But we didn't. Either out of naivete or our own blind selfishness and ambition, the church has been from the start, if not the architect, then the lead contractor of colonization. We provided the moral justification. And so today, even if we, the descendants of the settlers and their churches, even if we as individuals have never actively participated in this process, our people did. And it has brought to us wealth, security, and dangerous toxins in our own blood. That word toxin, by the way, it's not simply a metaphor. The toxicity is real. Let me read to you the list of symptoms of mercury poisoning and just think about whether or not you have seen this in your experience or the experience of others. Here's what it produces. Anxiety, depression, irritability memory problems, numbness, insecurity, loss of vision, decreased mobility or agility. And decolonization, it also is not a metaphor. In fact, that's the name of an article by Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang. And those words are important to keep in mind during this podcast, because here I know I run the risk of doing just that, of treating it like it's a metaphor. Decolonization is fundamentally about redress and repatriation, about returning the land to its original people. It's about undoing and reversing, wherever possible, the economic and social injustices that have come about as a result of colonization. 
The American writer Heather McGee points out that racism in America has cost everyone, not just racialized communities, not just black and Latinx communities, white folk as well. Colonization has also cost everyone, though for the colonizer, the Euro-Canadian, and specifically, I guess, the Anglo-Canadian, the cost has been more internal than external. But like mercury in the bloodstream, it persists, concentrates, and ultimately, it can destroy. This means if we want to return to health, we need a deeply spiritual detoxification, a cleansing. It's a process we need, need urgently to do, not for someone else's benefit, but for ourselves. Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with the openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. And so I pray you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me to be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. That quote from the Canadian novelist Douglas Copeland articulates so clearly the impact of colonization on our own souls, how it impedes our capacity to freely give. Well, what if I lose something? Our capacity to be kind. Well, what if it costs me something? Our capacity to love. And so we are left only with our own need, our need for God. And then, where might we find God? Where should we look? The brilliant Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, wrote some 50 years ago, as the oppressed, fighting to be human, take away the oppressor's power to dominate and suppress, they restore to the oppressors the humanity they had lost in the exercise of oppression. It is only the oppressed who, by freeing themselves, can free their oppressors. While it is true that it's only the oppressed who can set the oppressor free, it's also true that only the colonizer can dismantle the colonizing machine. We who have exalted ourselves at the expense of others need to humble ourselves if we are to have the humanity we've lost restored. And again, we're acting here not out of altruism, but need. See, if it were altruism, then we would still have the power, wouldn't we? But when we act out of need, our own deep need, well, then that's all we got. And so in this podcast, I'll outline elements of a process of spiritual decolonization aimed primarily, I think, at church folk, people of faith who are part of the historically dominant culture. This is really simply a kind of spiritual practice, a spiritual practice that helps in the process of opening ourselves, one that can help us face uncomfortable truths, help us listen more than we speak. 
It's an interior process that we can engage in both as individuals and as faith communities. Decolonization, anti-racism, intentionally opening outwards, intercultural, these are all parts of the same whole, and they all require both internal and external change. Authentic inner change will, must, produce external change, or it's not authentic. And external change must be accompanied by internal change, or it will not be authentic. I've returned now from my flying, that soaring in which I lost myself. I'd been singing, my, my ears tingle still from rhyming with God. I've become quiet again and ordinary. My speaking has stopped. My face sinks into a better prayer. I'd been the wind to others. I, I could make them shiver. I'd soared high near the angels, so high that light was melting into nothing. But darkening in the depths was God. This poem was written by Rilke well over a hundred years ago. Not at the end of colonization, but right at its peak. Empire for empire's sake. It somehow, for me at least, it captures so well the feelings of this moment, this call. Darkening in the depths was God, not in the soaring, not on eagles' wings, nor with filly angels on fluffy clouds up there somewhere, but in the depths, in the land, in the darkness below the land. It is what is below the surface that shapes the topography, the landscape. And in this unseen yet powerful formative realm, this shadow land along with God, what else lives there? What else moves there? Subterranean racism is a term I first heard when Stephen Lewis was speaking about AIDS in Africa. Today the term I think is more commonly used in Australia than in Canada, but clearly it's just as applicable here. Subterranean racism isn't the overt racism we often see in America. It's not that segregationist variety, not the Jim Crow variety, it's not the ugly racism that is so unmistakable. This is more subtle. It hides in the shadowlands, in the depths. But it has companions down there. And one is the legacy of colonialism, this dark force that has formed us, shaped us as a people, as a culture. My ancestors took this land by force or by spurious agreements. And the land remembers. The land holds the stories. It holds the narratives that we, the surface walkers, often try to forget, that we try to suppress. Do you remember in that ancient story of Cain and Abel? What did God say? Your brother's blood cries out from the soil to me. The land which tragically held the blood now holds the memories, remembers the story, and cries out for justice, and will not, I think, rest until that cry is heard. 
It is a story that we, the church, not only accepted, we often wrote it, narrated it. Rather than hearing God's cry from the land, from the earth, we imagined God's blessings from heaven on a self-serving story we invented. A story that led to what the Jamaican poet Kai Miller called the viral spread of government. Plenty things that should have never existed in the first place, like the conquest of pirates, like borders, like the viral spread of governments. Things that should never have existed in the first place. So, at this moment in history, we must return from our soaring. It wasn't God we were singing with anyways. That was just our imagination. We need to become quiet again and ordinary. Stop our incessant talking so that our faces can sink into a better prayer. So within the context of mainline churches in North America, what would inner decolonization look like? What might be involved in a spiritual practice around decolonization? As I tried to think about this, a whole bunch of D's came forward, all wanting to help. So here they are, the six D's of inner decolonization. The first one is the rather odd-sounding Defamiliarize the familiar. Defamiliarization is an art term, first coined by a Russian literary critic named Viktor Shklovsky. He recognized that over time our brains became overly accustomed to the familiar, to everyday objects and situations so familiar, in fact, that we can almost not see them. Our perceptions become dull, automatic. So to break that automatic process, we need to slow down our perceiving, to notice, to wonder. Defamiliarizing is about re-presenting common things, everyday realities, in an unfamiliar way. Looking differently at what we thought we knew. For example, think of your street, or any street if you like, really. Think of the concrete, the asphalt. Think of the cars that have driven on it over the years. And maybe the carts and horses before that. Think of what lies beneath. What was it like before concrete, before colonization, before the settlers? In my own case, probably grassland and buffalo, and perhaps a path to the meeting place of the nations at the junction of the Red and Assiniboine. Take anything you like and start to imagine moving back through time. Simply open your mind to wonder, to imagine, to reconsider what you see every day. This process simply helps our minds and our hearts open, ready for the next D. And the next D, then, is deconstruct assumptions. We all assume we need to. That's how our brains work. You might remember we explored this in episodes 8 and 9 on implicit bias. Because we are exposed at any moment to something like 11 million bits of information, and the conscious part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, can deal with about 40, the brain is constantly making shortcuts. Making assumptions is a very good shortcut, very effective, and for the most part, reliable. Except when it isn't. 
Our assumptions grow directly out of our experience, and our experience is limited to, well, what we've experienced. So, for example, we might have grown up in a home where everyone was super punctual and in a culture beyond that that rewarded being on time. Then later, if we work with people who are far more lax about time, our assumptions start flaring. Oh, they're so unreliable, lazy, whatever. We have an assumption that people should be on time, according to our definition of what on time means. Intentionally deconstructing assumptions is simply the process of when we recognize some kind of assumption we're making, asking, does this assumption work? In this context, in this time, does it hold? And with these people, is it right? Or should I change what I'm assuming? As individuals and in groups, we open ourselves to the possibility that what we assumed in the past might not hold for this present reality. Now, the third D is specific to Christian faith communities, and it is decentering word. In mainline Protestant churches, we use the word word quite a bit. We, we really like it. We speak of Jesus as the word of God. We talk about preaching the word, proclaiming the word, enacting the word. And to be honest, words form like 90% of Euro-Protestant worship. Take the words out of worship, not much left. We talked about that in episodes 19 and 20 called Finding the Heartbeat. Decentering the word then means making significant space for experience in worship, for emotion, and for that sense of affiliation, connection. The Greek word for word is logos, and logos is the root of our English word logic. Decentering logos also means decentering logic, rationality, that preferred Western way of thinking and deciding. It doesn't mean getting rid of it. Just get it to inch over a little bit. Make a wee bit more room for intuitive and other ways of thinking. Rationality, logic, they're all handled by the prefrontal cortex, that small, slow area of our brains used for conscious thinking. But our brains are far greater than that. If we do this, we can start to make room for group processes that are not limited to logical arguments and sequence. Processes that can include stories, narratives, group intuition, prayer, quiet. And this starts us on our way to D4, disorienting worship. Orient is the Latin word for east. And the verb to orient, orienting, came from the ancient method of navigating, which apparently involved, first of all, finding and facing the east. Orienteering is a sport where people find their way with a compass and map, two things that were exactly lacking at Knox when we started to engage in what became an utter transformation. Even today, if you truly want to open out your community, you're not likely to find a map. No. Nor a compass. No GPS, no template. Instead, intuition. Constant adaptation. And hopefully, persistent love. Oh, and a hunger to know. A hunger for God. It's exploration. The fifth D is destabilizing structure. Church rules, structures, they're inherently ethnocentric. The people, whoever comes from outside, when they see this as somebody's ruling them, we need to keep it flexible. I don't know how that rule works in this space. 
They were created by white Euro-Canadians, or Euro-Americans, or Euro-Australians, and worked well for white Euro-folk. Well, really, I guess, just for white Euro-folk who are educated, not poor, maybe not even working class. Destabilizing structure isn't a forever thing. New structure will emerge. Our human minds and hearts need it. This is just a temporary way of creating space for a new, more inclusive structure to evolve. A structure that works for a greater number, a greater diversity of people. And the sixth D, likely a given if we've done the first five, is to discomfort ourselves. Yep, seriously. To intentionally make ourselves uncomfortable. No need for hair shirts or sackcloth. That's an external discomfort. What we're talking about here is an internal discomfort. Not consistently, but at least occasionally. To engage in some kind of act that is uncomfortable. That challenges us to get out of our mental or spiritual assumption that we should be happy, content, satisfied all the time. And that if we're not, something's wrong. Chronic comfort can lead to a sense of entitlement. And entitlement is itself a toxin. If colonization is the taking of what one is not entitled to, then entitlement is the expectation that whatever we have or want or need, we're entitled to. It is unclear exactly how decolonization can occur in a country like Canada. Whatever else may be required, however, it will need to be a dialogue between nations, between equal participants in the conversation. But in terms of real access to the essential tools of nationhood, would our white Euro-Canadian citizens agree? Or would they see this as the zero-sum competition Heather McGee talks about? That's why our own heart preparation is essential. The inner decolonization processes outlined here are simply things we can do to cleanse ourselves in order to be ready. These processes can open the heart to the possibility of becoming trustworthy allies. And while preparing the heart is essential, this is the beginning of the process, not the end. As the heart becomes more malleable, cooperative, then our head needs to get involved. And here there are many great resources we can access, many fine books, films, interviews, all on the impact of colonialism, on paths to reconciliation and the like. But in Canada, perhaps the most important of all of these is the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, chaired by Justice Murray Sinclair. You heard Justice Sinclair speaking at the very beginning of this episode. If we actually are committed to seriously engaging in the interwoven processes of decolonization and reconciliation, if we seriously do want to walk that pathway, then we can begin by trying to decolonize our churches themselves, their regulatory systems, their governance. Get our own house in order. The United Church of Canada, my own denomination, has recently undergone a significant restructuring. 
I wasn't involved directly and can't know all that happened in the conversations, but in the new structure that emerged, a body called the All Native Circle Conference was dissolved, and the indigenous faith communities connected to it were redistributed to broad geographical regional bodies, creatively called regions. The ANCC, as, as it was known, was created several decades ago, the initiative of many wise and strong Indigenous leaders and advocates. And it meant a great deal to that community. Recently, I was at a meeting where a man I know, a great elder, wise and gentle, looked around the group. His eyes were blazing with a mix of anger and disappointment. He said, and they didn't even give us a chance to lament. After all the talk about reconciliation, all the lovely words about solidarity, how did we, how could we end up alienating our sisters and brothers in indigenous faith communities? Perhaps because our words have too often come from our heads, not our hearts, without the deep transformation of heart that's required. And of course, heart work is hard work. Deconstruct assumptions. Destabilize structure. Discomfort ourselves. I have placed this theme at the end of the podcast series because I do think that to engage meaningfully in the process, we need to have a certain level of maturity, heart wisdom as well as head wisdom. But implicitly, this has been integral to the whole process of intentionally opening ourselves outwards. Its placement is also a reminder. Here we are toward the end of one process and now re-emerging as beginners, learners again. If we can let go of our egos, that's actually a beautiful thing to be. We're different, each of us. Some of us have minds that quickly and easily go to the big picture, big ideas, what some people call the macro level. But details, well, they can overwhelm us. Others have minds that quickly and easily go to details, but they can be easily overwhelmed by the big picture. Decolonization is quite clearly a big picture item. If that kind of stuff doesn't come easy, I hope that focusing on some of the smaller spiritual practices that can ready us for the big idea will help. When we engage in this kind of mindful reconsideration, we open ourselves to the possibility of creating a sincerely open attitude, a sincere, humble curiosity, in which we are not engaging in conversation to achieve a particular goal, the so-called art of the deal that none of us will ever forget because of Trump. And so we can more effectively regulate our inner anxiety, the anxiety that accompanies learning that somehow life is not as we understood, and sort of quiet our inner critic, that voice that will, if it perceives any danger to our stable living, move to either judge others or criticize ourselves. As we become more comfortable in this open state, then we can engage more fully in exterior decolonization. We can become allies of those seeking a new relationship between indigenous and settler cultures, a relationship based on honesty and justice. 
it creates within us space and openness, an inner roominess so necessary if we are to become mature, wise allies, reliable over the long haul. The voice in the opening clip was that of Justice Sinclair speaking at a policy convention. In their simplicity and honesty, his words embodied deep graciousness and respect for the elders. His words, his tone, fuse unwavering resolve with unwavering compassion. I am grateful to live at a time and in a land where we can hear voices such as his. I am also grateful to the United Church Foundation for funding the initial research for this project through its McGeechee Scholarship and to the United Church Publishing House and Intercultural Ministries for their support. The Rilke poem is from a collection called The Book of Hours, and the Douglas Copeland reading is from Life After God. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. You can find Bruce at evensong.ca. If you or your community are looking for additional resources on intentionally opening outwards, you could check out the Forum for Intercultural Leadership and Learning, at interculturalleadership.ca or the Kaleidoscope Institute at kscopeinstitute.org. If you're looking for church resources connected to decolonization, you could check out the Mennonite Church Canada site under the tab Indigenous Settler Relations or the Anglican Church of Canada site under Truth and Reconciliation. In the United Church, there are resources in several places on their website, but you could start at their page, Reconciliation and Indigenous Justice. In today's episode, we really focused on the experience of the settler. In our next episode, we will take the settler right out of the equation and look at relationships between newcomers, many of whom were indigenous in their original lands, and First Nations here, people who are indigenous to this land. Until then, Jai Mashi. Peace. Salam. Shalom. Bishop Mishko. Gule Gule Get. Yes.